This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we speak with the Regulatory Affairs Lead at X-Wing about that company's autonomous fixed-wing aircraft. In the news, Delta Airlines is reconsidering their recently announced loyalty program changes, GPS spoofing is affecting some commercial flights, and who is this ops group? The flap over Schiphol Airport capacity caps. A crash takes the lives of two, including an AOPA senior vice president, and a 104-year-old woman goes skydiving. All that and more, coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 768 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk Podcast. He's a national CFI of the year and an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. And I'm happy to be here with you. Hello, everybody. Hi. We missed you last week. Did we miss you last week? Yes, you were uh, out flying about, maybe with a helicopter. I think that was probably the week before, but yes, I come and go. What can I say? I fade in and fade out. All right. Someone else who tends to fade out is uh, Rob Mark. He's continuing. Oh, I had to do it. It was too easy. Contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, which is part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI, former air traffic controller, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Well, good evening to you. Sorry, Rob. David Vanderhoof is our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, everyone. Looking forward to an interesting show with a Star Wars theme because we're talking about X-Wing. Yes, we are. Isn't that what we were? Yeah, okay. In fact, our guest this episode is Anna Dietrich. She's the regulatory affairs lead at X-Wing. Now, you may recall that X-Wing flies piloted commercial cargo operations under a Part 135 certificate with a fleet of Cessna caravans. But they've also developed an autonomous caravan and even conducted the world's first fully automated gate-to-gate demonstration of a commercial cargo aircraft. Now, due to some scheduling difficulties, Anna couldn't join us live as we record this show. So, Max Trescott, Micah, and I recorded a conversation with her a few days ago, and we'll play that interview after the news segment. Okay, on to the news. Is everyone ready? Ready from the West. Oh, yeah. Delaware. First item is Delta CEO admits the airline may have gone too far with loyalty changes. Well, last week we described how Delta Airlines planned to change its Sky Miles program. The airline said it would retire medallion qualifying miles and medallion qualifying segments and focus on qualifying dollars. Now, you could earn those by purchasing flights or a Delta vacations trip or booking a hotel or renting a car on the Delta website. And you could also get qualifying dollars by using the Delta branded credit card but not at the same one-for-one rate. Well, many of you let Delta know how angered you are with this change, and CEO Ed Bastian responded saying, quote, 
No question, we probably went too far in doing that. I think we moved too fast, and we are looking at it right now. <laughs> I thought this was uh, fascinating. I mean, this is like the, the voice of the, of the people, of the traveling public. Yeah, and I think the next paragraph was pretty cool, too. Bastinal uh, added that uh, we received a lot of feedback uh, and that we're going to be making modifications to the program. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine uh, the feedback? I, I'm sure it was all positive, constructive uh, suggestions for what uh, the CEO could do with his, uh, his uh, frequent flyer program. You know, you'd think that, I don't know, the marketing department, I mean, somehow they would test this or, you know, somehow vet a change like this or try to in advance of making such a large change. Uh, you know, you, often you have you know, focus groups with your customers or things like that. I, I don't know. It sounds like they didn't do anything other than just announce a program change. Well, it, it's clear that they did not take advantage of one of their major resources. A young fellow who uh, used to be a co-host on this show who uh, eventually uh, made his way to Delta and is now climbed the ladder somewhat. Uh, I'm not going to mention his name because he'd kill me, but uh, <laughs> clearly they didn't ask around too much about this before they did it. No, clearly. Something that happened uh, after the announcement that I thought was fascinating is that some of the other airlines responded to Delta's announcement. There's an article in I guess it's San Francisco Gate, SF Gate. And they point out that after the initial Delta announcement, Alaska Airlines said Delta SkyMiles medallion members could join their mileage plan program with no flight segment or spending requirement. They would just accept whatever uh, program status you had in Delta and apply that over to Alaska. And then JetBlue also jumped into it. And they offered elite status in its Mosaic loyalty program to Delta Flyers. Now, this is a limited time offer. This is through October 31st or until 30,000 people take advantage of the offer. So I thought that was pretty fascinating how these uh, other competitors jumped in and said, hey, you know, essentially, if you're a Delta Flyer and you're not really thrilled with uh, what, they've, what they've done to the program, We'll give you status on our program. Yeah, and I think that's a great example of newsjacking, which is basically when uh, you know one company decides to uh, jump in on some viral news story to you know kind of uh, prolificate their story. So it's very very marketing you know marketing savvy to uh, to jump in and do that. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. Well, and and of course the the real problem. I read this in some other story about this that uh, is that uh, Delta's. Uh, SkyMiles uh, elite people were really uh, very happy with the changes because the, the, the problem was that the top-tier diamond status folks said they couldn't even get into the lounges anymore uh, because there were so many people that had qualified at some level for these benefits, and uh, they couldn't even find a place to sit at times. And I, listen, you know, I mean, if, if you're in an exclusive club, that's what makes it exclusive is that not everybody can get in, whether it's fair or not. Uh, who knows? But but that that was uh, another thing that uh, Bastin was probably 
reacting to was a lot of upset, a number of upset folks that came in the diamond tier status who probably had his cell phone number. <laughs> yeah, we, we talked about the uh, the status cliff previously because the, the pandemic kind of disrupted the natural flow of status programs because obviously if they had just, well, they, if the airlines and the hotels and everybody else that offers uh, loyalty programs had um, just let all of their members fall off when nobody was traveling, yeah, that would have been a big problem. So a lot of people had their status extended uh, and maybe some of them even in normal times would not have been able to maintain it. But one of the results of that is we have a lot of people with with pretty healthy status. As you mentioned, Rob, if you're trying to enjoy the benefits of that status and you can't because of the throng of people in the lounge or whatever, that's not great either. The great unwashed masses? uh, Oh, okay, maybe that's, you know, that would have been me. I mean, because I think I have 11 miles on my uh, Delta card, but anyway. (laughs) 11 miles. All right, next item. This comes from AIN Online. Increasing fake GPS signals near Iran prompt FAA alert. Uh, Rob, you found this. This is this is kind of concerning. Uh, yeah, it, uh, it it certainly is. It's actually, to me, I'm surprised that we haven't heard much about this kind of thing before. Uh, and uh, I do think it's uh, interesting that People that normally would have uh, flown, uh, you know, south of Iran uh, were finding themselves right on the line uh, because their GPS was giving them uh, bum information. And luckily, it sounds like uh, most of these GPS systems said, uh, tilt, something's not right. Uh, And luckily, before these people got themselves into trouble, I mean... uh, one of the people I read about in that story uh, said they were absolutely right on the border with Iran and that uh, who knows what the Iranians might have done if, uh, you know, a, a Gulf Stream or a, an Embraer or something like that had uh, had crossed into Iranian airspace uh, unannounced. But again, this has always been something that I worried about with GPS navigation. We've become so dependent on it we're dependent on it for every kind of navigation. And uh, what if somebody throws a few uh, curveballs into the uh, uh, into the GPS system? I don't know what we do with that. The thing that really surprised me about this particular story was how far off course one of the jets was before they started getting radar vectors. They found that not only was the uh, GPS not working, but their INS system was not working. When they finally got radar vectors, the aircraft was found to be 80 nautical miles away from its track. That's a huge amount to uh, to be off of uh, you know your your flight plan. So I don't know how that happened that they got that far off, but it's interesting that uh, you know it was there was that big of a consequence to this. Well, it's bad enough when you're uh, crossing the uh, crossing the pond. Uh, I mean, to be 80, 80 nautical off the track, but when the Iranian airspace is right over there, uh, I I can imagine that uh, gave the pilots uh, quite a bit of a uh, an upset tummy. And GPS spoofing is not terribly difficult. Uh, there, there are several techniques, one of which is to 
interfere with the signals um, by sending out a stronger signal. I mean, GPS signals are not very strong, but you can use a radio transmitter that broadcasts fake GPS signals. And if it's stronger than the real signals, well, then that's what your that's what your hardware is going to pick up and use. There are other ways to do it, but it's a little bit more more complicated. We should tell our listeners in detail how to go about doing how this. To do Don't it? you no, think no, that would be a good no. public service? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, no, I'm kidding, of course. But the FAA called this a safety of flight risk to civil aviation operations. It's a it's a pretty serious thing. And another interesting thing from this article is that this data, this information, comes from something called Ops Group, which is uh, something that I never heard of. And Ops Group, which is conveniently at the website Ops. Dot group. It's a membership organization for pilots, flight dispatchers, schedulers, and controllers who are involved in international flight operations. And they have some 8,000 members. And the idea is that they share uh, new information on changes and risks that the members have, have reported. And they have a, a number of different services. There's a daily brief. They hold live ops alerts. They have other resources. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating group. There's a, a letter from the founder of Ops Group, who's Mark Z, that he's posted. It's their about page, essentially. And it kind of derived from an experience. He's a, a former airline pilot, and he was briefly a air traffic controller in New Zealand. But he was flying a Fokker 100 Austrian Airlines. And he said um, he was in the cockpit of our Fokker 100 about 20 minutes before departure to Rostov-on-Don, Russia, on a scheduled airline flight. He says, it's a little before 10 a.m. in Vienna, and as I'm turning off my phone, I see a story from the BBC about two helicopters having been shot down in Ukraine that morning. Looking at our charts, we plot the name of the town where this happened, and we see that it's almost exactly on our route. Maybe we'll see something interesting. That's the quote. That's the sum of our risk concern at that time as pilots operating this flight. He says, this was two months before a missile from the same area hit a Malaysian 777 en route from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur, MH17, killing all 298 on board. Prior to that, nobody thought that the conflict in Ukraine translated into a risk for those of us overflying. But that's not quite true, he says. Some people knew. A number of airlines said they had been avoiding Ukraine for months. MH17 was, in fact, the 17th aircraft to be shot down over Ukraine that summer. And Ukrainian CAA knew of the risk, too. So he finishes, uh, so why did the airlines not tell anyone else? Simply put, there was no mechanism to do so. Further, it wasn't in the culture at that time, a culture where the airline is kind of standalone unit. Airlines are competitors. Competitors don't share information. So he formed this group to kind of address those those issues, essentially kind of crowdsource information that people involved in international flight operations really, really want to know about. Uh, interesting organization. Definitely. Yeah. So that's a that's the path I went down with this article. I mean, it starts off with, uh, you know, the spoofing, and then you start looking at, okay, so where is this? Who's been recording these incidents? You know, and it's this group, ops group, has been capturing those uh, those uh, instances of uh, of spoofing. 
Yeah, and we should we should clarify that we're not using spoof in the sense of a joke. I mean, we're talking about serious crimes and misdemeanors here. I mean, this could have been very ugly uh, if if the pilots had not caught it in time. Yeah. David, another thing I wondered about was, are military aircraft susceptible to, to GPS spoofing like, like we know commercial aircraft are? All aircraft, all GPS is susceptible to uh, spoofing. Um, I mean, there's redundancies to prevent it, but keep in mind that we have aircraft that are designed to spoof other aircraft. You know, we have electronic warfare aircraft that are designed to do this kind of things. It is a tactic, you know, uh, deception is a tactic for all militaries, you know, and so this is not uncommon. I mean, I would hope that the GPS systems used by our military are less adverse to spoofing than maybe the civilian systems. But again, it is an active aspect of modern warfare, electronic warfare. It's no different than it's been over the years. You know, you provide misinformation. You know, okay, this is GPS, but you intercept communications and you change the communications to fool your enemy and, and entrap them. So, I mean, this is this is an old school technique with just using new technology. Yeah. Okay. Well said. Yeah. All right. Our next item that uh, Micah surfaced for us, it comes from CH Aviation, a great site, by the way. This is U.S.'s JetBlue challenges Dutch and EU over Schiphol capacity cap. Well, the Dutch government is planning to cut capacity at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport from 500,000 annual flights to 440,000 annual flights. So they're putting, they plan to put a cap on it, reducing by 60,000 flights a year. And why are they doing this? Well, they're doing this as an effort to reduce noise and carbon emissions. So as you might think, this isn't an exactly popular idea with a lot of uh, industry groups. KLM themselves uh, are opposed to this. IATA, the International Air Transport Association, is as well, and A4A, representing U.S. airlines. But there are other industry associations that are against this. The, the Baron, which represents airlines in the Netherlands, Air Cargo Netherlands, Airlines for Europe, and the European Regions Airline Association are, are, are all against this. Now, what this article talks about in terms of JetBlue is that JetBlue has made a regulatory filing with the U.S. Department of Transportation against the Dutch government and the European Union, calling for the DOT to take some action on this. And the airline claims that it is under an immediate threat of expulsion from Schiphol in 2024. This is interesting in a number of different ways, one of which is that when you think about how you can reduce emissions, a rather drastic method, it seems, that I don't think, any, I don't know if anybody else has ever offered this up, is to reduce the number of flights. Just fly less. You want less emissions? All right, we're not going to have as many flights. That gives you, I guess, sort of short-term, immediate benefit. Uh, the way we typically think about this is, oh, let's make aircraft operations uh, more 
um, efficient and environmentally friendly. Let's you know work on reducing the noise. Let's work on uh, lowering the emissions. And as we know, that takes years and years and years and billions and billions and billions of dollars to uh, accomplish. So I don't know. What do you guys think about this, this, this method? Just let's cut flights. I think it's, um, well, I think we need to understand the mindset, the culture of Europe. And they're not as patient over there. I mean, this entire climate uh, change issue and noise and pollution and uh, that whole push came from Europe in the first place. It didn't initiate, it didn't uh, uh, begin here in the United States. We've caught up, uh, you know, the the fever of that. Um, But, you know, again, the people that are calling for cuts are not thinking about, you know, their next vacation and, and, you know, the fact that they want to fly to, you know, Australia uh, or New Zealand or uh, South Africa. I mean, they... It's just not the way they think. Uh, but again, as you said, the, the way to reduce the amount of emissions is to uh, fly less. However, I doubt seriously that the, uh, the, these vehement uh, environmentalists will ever be satisfied with anything other than zero flights. I mean, if, they, if, if Schiphol had, had reduced it to uh, you know, 250,000, a year, which of course the airlines would go berserk over, uh, they still wouldn't be happy because they'd always say, "Well, there's more that we can do," uh, and and there is rationally, logically, sure. As we said, don't fly as much, um, but you know this is this is just it's a losing proposition because it will affect the economies of uh, of countries in Europe and and of course some here in the United States. But I think it's also a mistake for uh, JetBlue to say, and we should go after, you know, the DOT should go after KLM uh, and and make their life uh, difficult uh, because of this. And it's not fair. The the KLM Airlines folks didn't didn't create this problem. Um, So, you know, again, that's that's my thought. The article doesn't really tell what criteria they're going to use for reducing the flights. So we're kind of left to believe that they're just going to, you know, have even cuts across the board for all the participating airlines. So that may not be the case as JetBlue said they expect to have no slots available next summer based on the feedback that they've gotten. It strikes me that a better approach might be what France implemented a couple of years ago, which was uh, they banned short-range domestic flights on uh, routes that the same journey could be made by train. Uh, to me, that makes a whole lot of sense. In fact, they've, they've now canceled uh, some of these domestic uh, flights for good. They're just completely gone. Uh, so that kind of approach to me makes a lot more sense. Uh, if, if their cuts are just across the board, Wow. I mean, that, that, that sounds like an overly simplistic way of trying to, uh, to implement these reductions yeah, in point. Amsterdam. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting. As you say, the, the approach in France is to eliminate flights when there is an alternative um, that is more environmentally friendly, let's say, um, which for international flights, obviously, there, there isn't an alternative, at least not a, not a feasible one, unless you like a slow boat. Um, but uh, in the article, though, or in this piece from um, CH Aviation, uh, it answers the question, what does JetBlue want to get out of this? What's their idea? Why are they petitioning 
Why are they telling the DOT that they need to get involved in this? You know, what do they want the DOT to do? And uh, a, a paragraph from this piece says, JetBlue suggested that the DOT impose schedule filing requirements on Dutch flagged carriers flying to the U.S. Based on this, the DOT could determine reciprocal reductions, which it argued would send an immediate message to the Dutch carriers and their government that the department is ready to act in defense of U.S. carriers' bilateral rights. So, yeah, I mean, it does seem kind of like an escalation. I'd hope that there maybe is a different, a different way to approach this. Well, and it's not going to do any good. It really won't. I mean, unfortunately for, for JetBlue, they're, they're thinking that they were last in and they'll be the first to go because JetBlue just recently began service to uh, Amsterdam from, uh, I believe, Boston and New York both. And they were just kind of getting into it. Uh, and and now it may get yanked out from under them, and I I'm sure that that's not something they would take lightly. Yeah. Well, think about the other consequences. You know, if you have fewer flights going to Amsterdam, you got fewer seats arriving and departing, which to me says more tourism is going to go to other cities in Europe. So unless you implement similar cuts at all major airports and. Uh, in Europe, you're just kind of uh, shoveling tourists from, from one area to another and not necessarily having a, a continent-wide reduction. You're just kind of shifting the problem around a little bit. You know, plus, some of these major cities in Europe are close enough that you could reasonably decide, okay, if I can't fly out of Amsterdam, then I'll go across the border and fly out of you know some other city. So again, it just doesn't seem well thought out, though we don't have all the details of how they're going to reduce the flights. All right. Uh, we have a, a, a sad note to report from AOPA, AOPA's Vice President of Air Safety Institute. Richard McSpadden dies in plane crash. This just happened. Uh, Rob, this, this was a Cessna 177. Uh, a Cessna Cardinal RG, uh, Cessna 177, that uh, uh, they were taking off from Lake Placid to the northwest, from what I understand, uh, uh, from one of my contacts in the industry, who I shall not be looking at as I uh, explain this story. Hi, Rob. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, it's 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 very sad because uh, Richard was a uh, a very experienced pilot. Uh, he was at one time commander of the uh, U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds when he was a uh, a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And he had lots of experience flying aircraft uh, right on the edge of their uh, uh, operating envelope, and uh, so it's just it's just really sad to uh, to hear that uh, a man who was so devoted to safety uh, as the Air Safety Institute uh, guy was uh, you know lost his life in an accident. The other victim in the crash was Russ. Francis, former NFL player, and they both uh, they both perished in the crash. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. What, of course, it'll take some time to you know learn the facts of what happened exactly. But uh, I, I hope that uh, many people don't get the wrong impression about uh, you know. Sometimes when you see a really experienced person uh, lose their life in an accident, you think, oh, you know, gosh, you know. If, if they can, if they can't handle it, I mean, how would I ever do it? And yeah, it's, it, it doesn't work like that. We we don't know 
the situation that that these two guys faced and uh, uh, what was going on in the cockpit. And uh, we just have to kind of wait for the, the facts to come out. Right. All right. Moving on to uh, something uh, much happier. Uh, we have uh, finally a story about Dorothy Hoffner. And Rob, Dorothy, uh, Dorothy is looking to get herself into the Guinness Book of World Records. Kind of an interesting story. Dorothy actually wasn't trying to enter the Guinness Book of World Records. She just likes skydiving and uh, wanted to do it again, which is, you know, kind of uh, normal for people that love jumping out of airplanes. Uh, I'm not one of them, of course. But what makes this interesting is that Dorothy is 104 uh, today, and she'll be 105 in December. And... uh, uh, so she uh, she jumped from a uh, a skydive port on the uh, sort of southwest of Chicago here uh, over the uh, over the weekend, and what I thought was really great is that they have pictures of her walking out to the aircraft to uh, you know to get the ride up, and and she's using a walker because <laughs> she's a little unsteady on her feet, and um, uh, she didn't want a flight suit. She just one in her sweater and, and uh, you know, I guess it's jeans or something like that. But she had a helmet on. But what I thought was also interesting was the uh, a reporter asked, I guess, the instructor. And uh, the first time she did it, they, I, I guess they essentially had to push her out of the airplane. And, and I, I'm not, a, again, I'm not a diver, so I, I hear that people often uh, cough when they see the open doorway and the earth far beneath them they go well you know uh on second thought <clears throat> maybe i won't do this uh i'm i uh, think we'll uh, mm. but this time she was ready in fact she she jumped first and what i thought was the best part is that uh, they reported that uh, she just yelled uh, geronimo and she went out the door <laughs> with the instructor i love it I love it. This was a tandem jump, right? Yes, it was a tandem jump, and uh, uh, she landed uh, just fine. She remembered to bend her her knees when she uh, uh, before she hit the ground, and so it uh, you know it was all safe, and she loved it. But I, I think another uh, they they also described her at 104 as uh, uh, she describes herself as an unclaimed treasure. Uh, having never been married, and she said she never had to deal with the responsibility of kids or the pettiness and the mess of a husband. <laughs> I never had to take care of anyone but me. Oh, so I, I think that was really great. And I said, hey, man, I got to tell you, that's, that's, just, uh, uh, that's just the way to go. And uh, uh, good on you, uh, Dorothy. Uh, and I'm still not going to go skydiving. <laughs> There's a great picture of her as she lands, and she's on top of her instructor, basically. So yeah. he's he's lying on the ground. She's lying on top of him. And uh, she said she worked for Illinois Bell starting in 1938 as an operator. And regarding not having husband or children, she said, and this part I loved, that that was an essential ingredient that she credits for her long life. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I like this woman. Too late for us, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we screwed up, but, but uh, good sense, good sense of humor she has. 
Yeah, of course. Now the the Guinness people uh, know about this, and they're certainly going to uh, try and see if she qualifies because the uh, story also mentioned that the current record is held by a one hundred and three year old woman in Sweden uh, from uh, May of last year. So we'll see uh, how this works out. But again, by the time they figure this out, Dorothy will be a hundred and five. Uh, so, yeah. I wonder next? how much pizza she eats. Oh, God. At 104, she can eat whatever she wants. Exactly. Max Prescott, Micah, and I recently had a conversation with Anna Dietrich, the regulatory affairs lead at X-Wing about autonomous fixed-wing aircraft. And as I mentioned at the top of the show... X-Wing currently conducts piloted commercial cargo operations with their Cessna caravans, but of particular interest to us is the autonomous caravan that has demonstrated autonomous gate-to-gate operation. So as regulatory affairs lead at X-Wing, Anna leads the certification program for advanced aircraft control and detect and avoid systems for X-Wing's autonomous flight operations. Well, here's our conversation with Anna. Anna, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm glad we could make this happen. Looking forward to it. We are too. And our audience knows about X-Wing. We've talked about X-Wing in the past, but I wanted to start off just kind of making sure that everybody's baselined on X-Wing and what Superpilot is and kind of the current status of the project. Maybe you could kind of describe that briefly. Sure. So X-Wing is developing the autonomy stack to allow right now a Cessna caravan to fly uh, fully autonomously with oversight from a remote pilot. Um, And that technology has applications well beyond the sort of cargo niche where we're starting here. There's, There's DOD applications, there's other aircraft that can get involved. Um, so it's, uh, but it's, it's a great place to kind of get started with that technology and really prove out the utility of it and the safety of it. Um, so we are doing, uh, have been doing for a couple of years now, fully autonomous gate to gate flight operations. We have our, uh, project number with the FAA. So we have our STC project underway. Um, we're working on, on finding applications, uh, for other use cases with DOD and, and with other military applications with other FAA tech- that kind of thing. So there's a lot of different pieces going on, and it's an exciting time to be really seeing this technology start to mature and see where it can go. It really is exciting. And I, I think a lot of people agree that kind of starting in the, uh, the cargo arena um, with this sort of uh, technology is kind of prudent. The aviation industry, aerospace, likes to be conservative and develop things uh, stepwise. You, you talked about, you know, how it's fully autonomous with, with a, a pilot sort of monitoring from the ground. Is that kind of monitoring where they're just sort of following it and letting it take care of itself? Or is it monitoring like what you might find with, a, with an MQ-9 Reaper where it's actually being piloted from the ground? It's a really good question. So the super pilot system is capable of flying the aircraft safely on a predetermined flight path without any human intervention. And we feel that that is necessary for safety because, you know, you have things like lost link or, or other situations that may arise where you wouldn't necessarily have that direct, constant, real-time human interaction. 
So the aircraft is fully autonomous. It is capable of, of safely completing its flight plan and handling contingencies without interacting with that person on the ground. However, to be a good citizen and interact with our airspace and other users of that airspace and be able to take air traffic control direction real time during flight, uh, we do have a remote pilot that is able to strategically direct the aircraft. So they could modify the flight plan. They could correct it, you know, adjust a heading per traffic control, um, change a destination if, if something were to arise at the original intended airport, that kind of thing. But no, they're not stick and rudder remotely controlling that aircraft. There's a number of safety reasons why that doesn't make sense to, to do it that way. Um, but they are, you know, monitoring that aircraft. They are listening to air traffic control and they have the ability to make strategic modifications during that flight. Um, but no, they're not remotely piloting the aircraft. And that is a, a little bit of a nuance, but it is an important distinction. Yes. Now, the regulatory agencies, the FAA and so forth, have spent decades developing their processes around a certain kind or, or certain kinds of aviation. And now we see autonomous aircraft, fixed wing or otherwise, being developed and, and beginning to be used. What kinds of challenges has that posed to the FAA and other regulatory agencies? So I had the, the distinct honor of being able to be part of the Aviation Rulemaking Committee that rewrote 14 CFR Part 23, uh, which was published in 2017. And that's the core body of regulations that, that governs the airworthiness of an aircraft, so general aviation-sized aircraft. So when you're trying to certify a modification to a Cessna caravan, for example, that's the set of regulations that you're going to be using. Uh, when we rewrote Part 23, we very deliberately shifted to what's called a performance-based way of thinking and way of structuring those requirements, which focuses on safety intent. It focuses on what makes an airplane safe rather than a specific engineering solution for how to accomplish that safety. So what that did is it provided a lot more flexibility for the industry to be able to come up with innovative solutions and to bring innovative safety technology uh, to aircraft and, and to the airspace in a way that would have been much more challenging prior to that rewrite. So from an airworthiness perspective and from the perspective of how do we ensure that the modifications that we're making to this aircraft to enable autonomous flight, so the software, the hardware, the extra actuators, the sensors, putting stuff on the plane, that can all be done within that uh, 14 CFR Part 23 most recent amendment that we have there, that performance-based set of rules. So that's actually a really good fit for uh, bringing this kind of innovative technology into play. Where it gets uh, a little trickier, in, in my opinion, but um, still not so bad, uh, is when you look at the operating rules. So the way the FAA has their regulatory structure, regulatory um, framework structured, you have airworthiness, you have operational rules, and you have airman certifications. So you have the airplane, where it's flying, and the people flying it. Um, the airworthiness is that Part 23 piece. Operationally, we have changed a paradigm. We've, we've moved the person that's responsible for that aircraft off the aircraft. Um, however, we don't need to change how that aircraft interacts with the rest of the airspace. All of those requirements for operational rules still apply. We're just meeting them maybe in a different way. So some of the functions that the pilot on board would have performed in order to satisfy those operational rules. Now those functions are being performed, some of them by a system that's been certified to be on that aircraft. Some of them are being, some of them are being performed by a person on the ground to, to support the operation of that aircraft, but they're also being done. So we still meet all of these operational rules. So X-Wing isn't asking for, you know, not to have to comply with some of these operate, with any of the operating rules. 
some of them, the language is very pilot on board specific, and we need to have some some adjustments to the specific letter of those regulations. But the spirit of them, back to that safety intent of them, that all is still highly applicable. So we have to adjust some of the details in the language, but the concept of those rules and those regulations still applies very nicely. Um, and I would say that the, the airman certification piece, that sort of third leg of the stool, is another area where we need to reevaluate the specifics of training for the mission. So uh, if you're a remote pilot, you still need to have good, such, good situational awareness, good decision making. You need to understand how to talk on the radio, work with our traffic control. Um, but you don't necessarily need to be really good at stick and rudder skills, right? Like you're, you're managing systems, you're providing strategic direction. You need to be really good at working with the interface that's been provided for you at your ground control station. Um, so that skill set is, is going to have to shift over time. Um, X-Wing's approach uh, is to go ahead and just uh, utilize a commercially current pilot that would otherwise be fully qualified to, to fly in their Part 135 operations on board that aircraft, provide that person additional training so that they can also fly that aircraft remotely. And that's our starting point. Uh, it just seems simpler that way. Um, but I would say of those three areas, that's probably where we're going to want to you know, figure out, do we need a, a new type of, of pilot license? Do we need something new there? Um, we don't need it to get started. We can take train pilots and give them additional training to get started. But I think airworthiness, we've got that. The performance-based rules work really well. Operational rules, the, the spirit of those all applies. We can satisfy the intent of all of those. Some of the language is a little not appropriate for uncrewed aircraft. And then the airman certification, we can use what we've got. But I think that's where some of the um, most additional uh, regulatory language may need to be developed over time. So in a future world where there are perhaps lots of autonomous aircraft operating, is the intent that it's not really a situation where, you know, there are uh, crewed aircraft and have one set of rules and are operating one way, and then there's this other class of aircraft that that's autonomous and has this, or is it more a situation where we expect that it's just, they're just all aircraft and there, there really isn't kind of a dis a practical distinction between them? Is that is that fair? Yeah, and in Anna's view of the world, it's the latter, right? I, I don't think that segregating crude and uncrude operations is a long-term solution that is in the interest of safety or efficiency or business or anything else, right? I think we need to have, uh, you know, an operating system that can safely and efficiently accommodate all types of aircraft in all of our airspace. Um, we may end up segregating as sort of a training wheels phase, um, but I, I think that if we can uh, hold our uncrewed aircraft uh, to the bar of that you have to be interoperable in, in the airspace and we can hold our airspace to the bar of you have to be able to communicate with uncrewed aircraft, which might require some infrastructure improvements, um, I think we can end up in a situation where where everyone can operate safely and and inter you know interoperate and intercommunicate and sort of have a common rules of the road that that all aircraft crewed or uncrewed are are following. I'm kind of curious, you know, when you you talk about uncrewed aircraft, and I think about um, FedEx has a route uh, flying uh, 208s regularly here in in Maine from Presque Isle down to to Portland, Maine. It's about you know 300 miles more or less and it's over non-populated areas or rural areas you know and they have regular routes you know portland is the hub for fedex where they they fly their big aircraft and they have regular routes out of bangor and out of augusta and dover foxcraft all those areas and i can certainly easily see you know the uncrewed aircraft flying in that airspace with without any problem at all uh because there's not a lot of interactions going on but how do you do something like that in the new york metropolitan area 
Certainly, the more complex the airspace is, the the more complex the operations has to be to support it. So, I would fully support uh, early use cases being the type that you're describing of uh, you know relatively um, unpopulated areas, relatively low usage airspace. Right? It just makes it makes it simpler, it lowers the the risk overall. Um, so, I think that's a very logical place to start. Um, but you know, the technology that X Wing is developing, the Super Pilot system. It has a detect and avoid system on board that aircraft. It's it's able to you know avoid uncooperative traffic. We're flying IFR flight plan with you know ATC approval and segregation services, um, separation services. Excuse me. Um, so if you could fly that route today with a piloted caravan, there's really no reason why you couldn't fly that route with with an autonomous super pilot equipped caravan. So I appreciate you know starting kind of more simple and building that experience and building that confidence, looking for those unknown unknowns. I think that's prudent. I think that's kind of the aviation way. Um, but I don't see any barriers as to why we, we couldn't ultimately use this technology in a, a way that is really transparent as to whether or not that particular aircraft is being flown uh, with super pilot and a remote operator versus with an onboard pilot. I think the technology is there very nearly so. You mentioned uh, avoid and detect, and certainly that's going to work well in the air. Uh, what about on the ground? So, for example, my home airport is Palo Alto, and we have cars driving around, and so 208s do fly in, and they do have to make their way uh, over to the uh, the terminal. Uh, and certainly on at least one occasion when I was at Reed Hill View, a car pulled out in front of me while I was taxiing, and the driver was totally clueless, had no idea that, yeah, I had to step on the brakes. And uh, I, I did catch up with him later, and he said, oh, no, I looked. It's like, really? You didn't know I was behind you. <laughs> yeah, so autonomous taxi is one of the key technologies that X-Wing has developed. So the aircraft has a LiDAR on board, very similar to an uh, autonomous car on, on the road, um, and can can see that car and can put on the brakes just like you had to do. So yeah, autonomous taxi is one of the one of the key technologies of the super pilot stack. And uh, speaking of uh, cars, uh, land-based autonomous vehicles, is there much technology transfer going on between the the aviation version of that and the terrestrial version of that? Not as much as you might expect. So the automotive uh, regulatory environment is very different from the aviation regulatory environment. And the processes that are used for automotive quality control and and manufacturing assurance and those kinds of things um, don't necessarily check all the boxes that aviation requires. Um, so there is a regulatory hurdle associated with using autonomous technology in in aviation, but also once you get off of that ground environment, I mean, I mentioned we are, you know we are using a lidar, right? Like that is sort of part of the um, part of the package, but that's only for use on the ground in that taxiing environment. Once you get in, once you get airborne, all of the ranges are different, all of the speeds are different, right? Like it's just a different operating environment. So um, in addition to the the regulatory hurdles that that are present. It's just not necessarily a one-to-one transferable technology. What I do think uh, aviation and and, uh, ground-based automotive autonomy would do well to start having a a better conversation around is um, roles of humans relative to autonomy and how we as a society want to handle things like liability and responsibility and training and and who is actually... um, you know, responsible for the safe operation of that vehicle. And I've done a lot of work looking at levels of autonomy, which is an automotive construct. Um, and, and it doesn't 
really serve the interest of safety, to be frank. So aviation is trying to do something different there. And and I think there's, as a society, we, we're, we're not really there yet in terms of a unified conversation. And I think eventually we'll have to be just because it, it will converge. But right now it's still pretty separate conversations. There was a story recently on, on NPR just the other day about uh, a driverless uh, Uber car in San Francisco that uh, and, like, apparently it turned into a TikTok video that I have not seen. But uh, there they are on the street and there's some construction going on and there's a traffic cop trying to move this Uber car and giving it direction to move through the construction. And it would not move. They could not get it to go anywhere. It just got stuck and it was hysterical. It sounded like a great story and I wish I could have seen it. I'm curious if you have any developmental stories like that with the aircraft of, of not dangerous things, but sort of funny things that happened uh, in terms of this this type of piloting or flying. Gosh, I kind of wish I did. Um, but no, I don't. I don't think I do. <laughs> um, Is super pilot trained in a, in a manner similar to uh, how a Tesla might be trained? So the concept of training is a really interesting one when you start trying to apply aircraft certification techniques to machine learning or artificial intelligence. Um, and FAA just launched an initiative um, a week or so ago. There was a conference to kind of kick it off at MITRE on how do we regulate uh, AI uh, in the aviation environment. And I think there's a, a really critical distinction that needs to be made. So... Um, the I want to try to find this quote because it was just it was so good. Um, safety is is the goal, right? AI is an implementation, and machine learning is a tool to create the AI. And I think that that is just such an important distinction, right? We're Machine learning and training something, that is basically a way of developing an AI system. It's not something that you necessarily want to put like out in the world on its own. So any application of AI that, that would have been developed with a machine learning tool, um, that's not going to be learning real time. That's going to have been trained and developed and finalized and validated and put through all of its testing in its in its final frozen configuration after it's been trained. And then that certified set of software, regardless of how it was developed, right? Like that's now a certified set of software that's going on the airplane. So it's not learning real time. It's not changing in flight, right? And I think that that's something that, um, you know, our certification mechanisms within aviation, just they don't have a way to accommodate that. And I can appreciate why not. Um, so you're not learning while you're flying. You're not, I, I don't know if Tesla's learning while they're driving or not, but I kind of suspect they might be. Um, but you're, you're not changing the behavior of that system. Once it's on the airplane, you know what it's going to do. It's, it's, a, you know, deterministic is the phrase that is the term that gets used, but it's something that you understand. It may be complicated, but you understand what it's going to do and you validated how it's going to react to a given situation. So that's a becomes a certified set of software. Um, now, if you have your your R and D aircraft that's also running a version of that software, and you want to allow that development platform to continue to learn, and you want to keep training your development version of the software, 
And then you get to a point where it's like, oh yeah, this is this is safer now because it's learned how to handle this other situation that it hadn't been encountered before. There's a mechanism by which you can go through an update process. You can freeze it. You can change the software that's in your certified platform. And there's a whole certification change process that you can go through for that. So it's not a dynamic changing, learning on the job kind of thing. It's it's trained and it's certified, then it goes on the plane. And then if you want to update it based on additional learning that's been done in a development platform, you can do that through the appropriate mechanisms. So as you're developing the software, how do you know when it's production ready, when it's certified? What's sort of the quality process? I am not a software engineer. I know. We're kind of getting a little far. Maybe that's, uh, maybe it's not a fair question for you. So I, I can't speak to the software aspects of it. I passed that class, but by the skin of my teeth. Um, but what I can tell you is that from a certification perspective, there's an extremely high level of rigor that gets applied to anything that's going to go on that aircraft. So after the engineers verify that a given system performs all of its intended functions across the entire operational envelope of that aircraft, and we have the documentation that shows that, that goes into the certification conversation with the FAA. Um, all of the test reports, all of the validation data, right? Like there's this whole verification and validation process that gets accomplished. Um, and those artifacts that come out of that effort are what feeds into the certification process. So how do you know when it's done? I mean, that's that's more of a software question of like that you've you've checked all the boxes for your requirements. How do you know if it's certifiable? It's that you can validate and show that it performs all of the things that it's supposed to be able to do and meets all those requirements that you were designing to. There was a story out in April of this year that said that X-Wing has begun the FAA certification process for Superpilot. Is that to say that at this point you think that you have a, a fully developed set of software that's locked down that you're uh, trying to get certified or does it still have development going on? And what's the kind of time horizon? I know these things are uh, uncertain, but when do you folks hope that uh, you know this will be uh, certificated? Oh, uh, tomorrow would be great. Um, <laughs> no, I, I really, I can't really speak to timing, especially with the government shutdown possibility coming next week, right? Like it, just one example of why timing is so hard to predict for these things. Yeah. There's so many variables. Um, but what I what I can say in terms of what, what that means, so um, there is a, a very sort of extensive process that you march through to get an airworthiness certification. So we have applied for a supplemental type certificate uh, on the aircraft, and we're, we're working with the FAA to finalize uh, the certification requirements that will be applied to this project. So there's a, an iterative, collaborative, co-creation sort of process that happens at the beginning of a certification program where you can't, you actually can't say that whatever you're trying to certify is 100% finished because you're still working with the FAA to come to agreement on all of the details of the requirements that are going to be applied to that product. So you have to be at a mature enough point to have a credible conversation with the FAA about what is it that we're going to do? What are the re applicable regulations, right? What's our intended function list? How do we know what we have to, what do we have to show you, right? Like, you have to be able to have that conversation in a constructive and credible way. But then you work through a process with the FAA where you're actively finalizing the requirements that will be applied to that system. And then you have to show that you've met those final set of requirements, right? So I don't anticipate that there's a significant delta between what you have at the beginning of that process and what you end up with at the end. 
But I think it would be naive to assume that there wouldn't be any changes as a result of that process because you're actively working on finalizing requirements and then requirements have to feed back in. So you're saying it might be two or three weeks before you <laughs> Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe by Christmas. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, kidding, of course. So you've been talking about working with regulators and getting their approval. And I'm wondering if there is another class of uh, people uh, the public that might need something similar. And, and what I'm thinking is, or what I'm thinking of, is we've seen a number of examples where law enforcement, local law enforcement, uh, police departments have uh, implemented drone programs, and they've done everything right. They've, you know, they've got the hardware, the, the software, the piloting, the whole thing, um, and then they implement it, and then the public goes crazy wondering if the police are now using drones to spy on them and everything else like that. So and it's been a real problem. So I don't think it, it kind of rises to maybe to that level of, of concern. But Anna, do you think that there needs to be a, something to help the public, the general public, uh, understand and accept autonomous aircraft? I want to, well, first of all, I, I want to just agree right off the bat that public engagement and, and public acceptance of any new technology is, in my opinion, absolutely essential for that technology to be fielded in any sort of scale, right? So I do want to make a distinction, though, between adding autonomous capability to an existing usage, an existing mission, and fielding an entirely new use of a technology. So what you talking about with, you know, law enforcement use of, of small UAS, that is a new thing that people didn't used to do with stuff that flies, right? Like that technology has enabled a whole new way of using our airspace, right? Good, bad, ugly. It's just a completely different thing. So I think the public discourse around that is different from taking an existing, you know, we're talking about FedEx flying these these cargo aircraft, you know, but we're, we're you and my guy, like, we're already flying boxes on caravans. We're already flying airplanes in and out of general aviation airports. What we're doing with Superpilot is taking those existing flights that are already part of our communities and our daily lives and already having whatever impact they're going to have and making them safer and making them more cost effective and making the goods and services that they move more accessible to more people, right? So we're already doing this thing with airplanes. We're just making it better. And yes, there is an obligation to engage in an appropriate manner with the public to help them understand what is autonomy. Why do we believe it's safe? What have we done from a certification perspective? You know, we're maintaining the same level of safety or or improving it. Um, we have to have that conversation. And I think that, that that's a very fair conversation to have. I think it's a very different conversation from now I can look out my window and see this thing buzzing my house, <laughs> yes, right? Like, yeah, sure. It's a completely different way of integrating a technology into a community. Sure. I've got a question, and it's a question from Max T. I'm going to put you on the spot, Max. You're a pilot. You're an amazing pilot, and you're an instructor pilot, and you teach 
pilots how to fly and how to be aware when they're flying and you teach them about situational awareness. As a pilot with as many hours as you have, what concerns would you have in terms of flying an aircraft like this in the skies where situational awareness might come into play that you would be concerned about and would maybe want Anna to address? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, if I were flying one of these, I wouldn't be in the airplane. I would be on the ground controlling it remotely. So uh, my level of angst just came down tremendously. <laughs> if something bad is going to happen, I'm not on the airplane. Uh, but I also, you know, as an engineer and you know, somebody who loves technology, I, I think this is the future. And I think there are challenges. And I think that uh, you know, the various companies that are working on this are going to work their way, you know, through all of these changes. And yes, I think there probably will be a few occasions like the, uh, you know, the, the autonomous cars in San Francisco. Uh, I've seen the articles where they, I think the fire department logged something like 55 issues that they've had uh, with autonomous cars uh, where their department has you know, not been able to get the car to move or where it's you know, hit a fire truck or, you know, you name it. It's, yeah, but I think we're going to have far fewer of those kinds of things things in aviation because I think we're in a much simpler environment, which is great. You know, we have a very fixed set of rules. Uh, we don't have traffic cones in the air. We don't have all these other random, you know, objects in the air. So I think it's a much simpler problem. So as, as a pilot, no, I, I kind of embrace this. I, I don't have, um, you know, any any real angst over it. That's great to hear. That's what, that's what I was hoping to hear. Yeah, yeah, and especially from a guy like Max Trescott, because if he felt otherwise about that, if he felt otherwise about that, then we should all be concerned, I think. <laughs> but, um, Anna, just a, a little bit of a different topic. Uh, so this is a fairly male-dominated industry, Anna, and uh, I wonder if that's presented any specific challenges for you or difficulties or things that you've uh, had to face maybe that – uh, others of the male persuasion may not have? Yeah, it's a question that I get asked a lot. Are you tired of being asked that question? Um, no, I think it's a, an important part of our conversation as a society, right? So um, when I was in college, only 13% of aerospace engineering majors across the country were female. Um, I was fortunate enough that at MIT, it was much, much closer to 50-50. I think we were really like 42% female my my graduating class, right? So... I really didn't feel different um, in college um, when I got my pilot's license while I was in grad school. My flight instructor was a woman. Um, the only place that, that we joked about gender there was that she was, like, so excited because I was, you know— also fairly small, like we were both about the same size. And she was like, oh, this is great. We can actually gas up the plane and go somewhere. Because, <laughs> you know, I was used to having rather larger male clients that meant that they couldn't put a full tank of gas in the little Piper Tomahawk that we were flying. <laughs> so that was kind of my first exposure to like, oh, maybe there's a gender difference here. But it was in this very funny sort of like tongue in cheek kind of way of we can do longer cross country flights. Um I think, you know, I've, I've tracked a very unique path through the industry, not least of which including starting a company with my now husband right out of grad school, right? So, um, that dynamic is, is certainly a unique one and probably has a book or two buried in it if I ever wanted to go there. But, um, no, you know, I, I don't see, um, I, I think I've been very fortunate. There's been a few instances where somebody has said something that I'm pretty confident they wouldn't have said to a male colleague, but they've been few and far between. 
What I do think has been shifting over the course of the 20 years that I've I've been in this industry, and I don't think it's just confined to aviation. I think it's a societal shift, and I'm really excited about it. So just indulge me for a second here, is I think that anyone, male or female, that has children or family or life outside of work is much more um, encouraged to acknowledge that and, and to accommodate that. And I see male colleagues that have little kids that have their little kids on the background in their Zoom calls now. And I, I hear male colleagues saying, like, oh, no, I can't do that. I have to take my kid to soccer practice. And and those are things that I think we're all better for of being able to acknowledge that I'm a human being. Yes, I'm a highly trained engineer with a pilot's license, blah, 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 blah. I'm a human being and I have other interests and I have a family and I have other commitments and being able to bring those pieces into the discourse about what I can and can't do and, and how my work-life balance is going to be structured, to overuse that term. But I think that's of benefit to everyone, not just, you know, like traditionally you think of like the questions that have been asked of me that I thought were inappropriate were around like, oh, you have little kids. Are you sure you can travel for that? And I was just like, yeah, yeah, you know, so do you. <laughs> um, but I think that it's not just that people aren't asking women that anymore. I think more importantly, I'm starting to see people ask men that, right? Yeah. It's like, are you sure you want to be away for your kid's Halloween to a guy, right? To a, a father, you know, it's not just the mom is assumed to be the one to be doing these things, but the dad is too. And I think we're all richer for that. Um, so I don't think there's anything that's been like, you know, I haven't been able to do, or I've had an opportunity to deny it or anything like that because of my gender. But I do see this shift in that all of us are more allowed to have other commitments. And I think that's really wonderful. I think that makes us all better. Yeah. A very welcome change over and long, long overdue. Anna, has X-Wing been able to, um, attract a, a diverse group of employees not just gender, but skill levels and all? I think so, yeah. I mean, I've been working with the team there in in various capacities for coming up on five years. Um, And I've always been very impressed with um, with the team that they've brought in and, and been able to, to keep long term and the, the skills and the, I mean, it is, yeah, I, I think, you know, as we were talking about, there's, you know, only 13% of aerospace race engineers were women. So it is always harder to have a completely gender balanced team, but, um, but I find it a very, um, a very diverse and very welcoming place and, and very respectful of all of those sort of other considerations that we were just talking about. If you have a life, and do your work, but you have a life. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm curious. I noticed that X-Wing has a government contract, maybe more than that. And I recall that Terrafugia also did as well. Is our government contracts an important place for small aerospace startups to kind of get a f- initial funding? Tell us about that dynamic. Is that important in the industry? I think the, the government contracts and particularly AFWERX, um, and the, the Air Force innovation initiatives that we're seeing right now are playing an extremely important role for the aviation industry today. Um, they are bringing uh, non-dilutive funding, which is always lovely as an entrepreneur, right? But they're even more importantly, they're bringing uh, sort of these these real real world military application thinking to to what would otherwise potentially be a little bit more of an esoteric vision. In, in some cases, um, they're bringing um, exposure to 
a very mature and very successful uh, risk management approach and flight testing oversight and design review structure that can sometimes be overly burdensome for a small organization. But having that exposure, I think, is valuable for, for a young company. And I think the credibility that comes from having been selected from a very large playing field, sometimes thousands of applicants for a contract like like this, um, speaks to the quality of the team and, and the, the reality of the technology. And, and it brings a vote of confidence and a, and a layer of credibility to an organization that would be hard to get otherwise. Um, and, and other players in the industry and investors in the industry see that as a significant vote of confidence. So I think there's, there's a lot of benefit for that. And I, I really, I truly hope that the program continues and has continued to be funded and grown. And um, I think there's benefits to, to the country on a number of different levels, both the end product with the military products potentially, but, but even more importantly in the near term with supporting these innovative organizations and kind of elevating that discourse. Mm. You know, Anna, the first time I met Max Trescott was, I think it was 2011, and it was at an AOPA conference event in Hartford, Connecticut. And I, uh, I also met Carl there and interviewed him uh, briefly. And I think you were there, too. I think so. Yeah. Yes. We've continued. This podcast has continued to follow Terrafugia over the years. I remember there was a, uh, a fly-in. I think it was a fly-in in Simsbury, maybe, Connecticut. Yep. Simsbury, Connecticut. Yep. The vehicle was there. Mm-hmm. We followed it for quite a while, but unfortunately, Terrafugia is you know is is no more. Are you able to say a few things about kind of put a put a cap on it for our listeners and talk a little bit about the company and and how it ended up? Yeah, Terrafugia was, I mean, a truly formative experience for me personally and professionally. Not not surprisingly. Um, Before we go on. Max, we have a lot of new listeners that probably weren't listening in 2011. And yes, we've talked about it. Maybe we better explain what Terrafugia was and what happened before we go into the details about it. That's fair. I, I can give the 30-second the version, sure. So Terrafugia was the uh, company that my husband Carl and I were co-founders of back in the early 2000s. And our first uh, product that we developed there was a rotable airplane. It was the transition uh, it was a light sport aircraft. You could fold up the wings, drive home, park it in your garage. And then uh, from there, we moved on into the eVTOL space, actually. Before eVTOL was the acronym of choice, I was actually in the room when we gave up and settled on that one. So, sorry. <laughs> but uh, we did some, some eVTOL work, uh, both for personal aircraft as well as with DARPA. Prior to AFWorks, there was a DARPA contract that, that we participated in there. Um and uh, explored several iterations and styles of eVTOL aircraft design as, as the company moved forward. Um, in uh, the early 2010s, early mid-2010s, um, I guess it was mid, we ended up uh, selling the company to Geely, which is an international conglomerate. They own a lot of brands that folks are familiar with, including Volvo and London Electric Taxi, and, um, and had uh, intended to work with them to, to go into production and to, to take the transition to market and to continue to develop some of these eVTOL concepts. And unfortunately, for a wide variety of reasons, everything from bill of materials through internal corporate politics, uh, it didn't happen. 
and ultimately uh, all of the projects that we had been working on in, in that organization were shelved. So um, you can't go buy a transition. You can't go buy a TFX. It's really kind of a bummer, but it was a, a phenomenal experience for myself. Um, and I think it, uh, I think we were able to jumpstart the industry in, in some ways uh, that are, we're still sort of seeing repercussions from and, and ripples from um, in, in the modern advanced air mobility space. So um, yeah, some things go and some things don't. And uh, it was 20 or 30 years of experience in 10 and really glad we did it. And yeah, I wish it had ended differently, but, um, but that's life. Yeah. Is there a prototype or two floating around somewhere that should end up in a, you know, National Air and Space Museum or someplace? We were hoping to get one of the transitions into the Boston Museum of Science, but I honestly don't know what the status of, of those are, to, to be honest with you. Um, I'm curious. I'm going to have to go find out, but um, not, not that I... Not that I know of offhand. Yeah, yeah. Cause that... I have a model on my desk, but... <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, oh, nice. Very nice. And here I, was gonna, I was hoping you were going to say you snuck one away and it's in your garage. I know. Yeah. Somewhere. <laughs> maybe, I wish, Maybe right? there is and she's just not saying. Maybe if we hadn't left Boston. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. What's what's ahead for X-Wing, Anna? What, what can we expect uh, in the sort of the near to midterm? Oh, well, I think we're going to see uh, continuing progress coming out of the certification program. That's kind of my baby, right? So I certainly think that there's there's definitely more to come there. I think we're going to see additional uh, contracts, um, DOD and otherwise. And I think we're, we're going to see a continued maturation and demonstration of the technology. So there's a, um, I, I've been very impressed with the team and what they've been able to accomplish from a, a technical perspective so far. And I'm, I'm really excited to see things starting to really come together in a, in a more publicly visible kind of way. You know, engineering is an awful lot of building the part of the iceberg that's under the water. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I think we're going to start to see more of that, the part that can pop up and, and really do some really impressive things in the near term. Very good. Anna Dietrich, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Uh, I think uh, our audience is really going to enjoy hearing you. Oh, the pleasure's been mine. I really appreciate all of you. Thanks for, for making the time to talk to me. All right. Anna's personal website is AnnaMDietrich.com. So that's A-N-N-A, Anna M. Dietrich is D-I-E-T-R-I-C-H.com. And, of course, you can find X-Wing at X-Wing.com. And an interesting note, it turns out that Peter Johnson just published episode 184 of the Aviation Extended podcast, and you know who his guest is? It's Max Gariel. He's the co-founder, president, and chief technology officer for X-Wing. So you have that. And also, back in episode 736, our guest was Earl Lawrence, who is the chief compliance and quality officer at X-Wing. Uh, Earl was uh, previously the executive director of aircraft certification at the FAA. So there's another source of more information on X-Wing. You can find that at airplanegeeks.com slash 736. And we'll put a link to the Aviation Extended episode also in the show notes as well as Anna's personal website. What's up with the geeks? David, anything uh, interesting going on at the American Helicopter Museum? Actually, yes. 
we've got two authors in our yearly author series that's coming up. Um, the first one is Robin Bartlett, who wrote uh, Vietnam Combat, Firefights, and Writing History. So that'll be Thursday, October 5th, between 7 and 8.30. And it is online or in person. So you can um, we'll have a link to the um, Zoom call in our show notes. And then on the following, um, on the 19th, we have Alan Mack, who is from Razor 3 and Night Stalker's War. Um, he flew um, MH-47Es and MH-60s. So both of those authors will be available. Um, and like I said, the links will be in the show notes. So if you're looking for something to do on a Thursday evening before Thursday Night Football comes on, I recommend um, these two authors. Um, they should be both very good lectures. Yeah, this speaker series that the museum is doing there, David, I think it's uh, it's it's really great because you have a lot of interesting interesting speakers. But I especially like how not only is it, as you mentioned, not only is it an uh, in-person event, but uh, if that's not possible, you can uh, go online. And I think you said it's a Zoom call. Yeah. Yeah, which everybody practically knows how to how to use, and you can use that from uh, around the world, as it were. So, yeah, that's great. Max Trescott, how about you? Oh, I just want to make a mention of uh, episode uh, 295 of Aviation News Talk. This week, we're going to be talking about a training flight that occurred uh, last week, a crash on Wednesday in Kentucky in a thunderstorm that killed both the CFI and the student, and this has been making the rounds because the CFI had been posting on social media during the pre-flight as well as during the flight itself, and those comments were pretty bad. Uh, they they are essentially extremely demeaning of the the student, reflected very poorly on the the CFI, and of course uh, it was just kind of tragic on multiple levels since the uh, flight then flew into a thunderstorm at night killing both of them. So um, I've talked with uh, Catherine Cavagnaro and we've talked a lot about uh, what went wrong with this particular flight. And I can tell you was there wasn't much that went right about it. Wow. That's, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Pete, how, uh, how, how not to do social media. Yeah. I, I just, I just don't understand human beings sometimes. He, he was being critical of the student while he was flying with him. Yeah. Yeah, he was oh, uh, posting God. very demeaning comments, including ones that uh, you know were disparaging of you know people who were intellectually handicapped, comparing him to uh, you know people who uh, are handicapped. So it was just uh, it, it's just atrocious, is all I can say. Hmm. Wow. Hmm. Well, I'll catch up on that one. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, but but on the positive side, we talked at the end about what people should be encouraged to become a CFI. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, some people will uh, kind of think, oh, I could do better than that. Anybody could do better than that. Maybe I should become a CFI. And this is on um, Aviation News Talk podcast, right? What episode is this? Uh, 295. So it's the new episode that'll be out uh, for this week. You're up to almost 300 episodes? It's true. How did that happen? He snuck up on us. <laughs> there he's catching up, right? It's all those late nights. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So that's a big milestone coming up. Indeed. Yeah. I, I don't know how, seriously, 
Max Flight. I don't know how Max Trescott does it. I don't think he ever sleeps because how he keeps turning these out when he's flying as much as the I, I don't I I think are you using AI, Mr. Trescott? <laughs> no, you know, the reality is I have no other hobbies and uh the children have moved out and so <laughs> I spent all my time on aviation and that's actually pretty true. Keeps you out of trouble. Yeah. Oh, it does keep me off the streets at night, which is good. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, Rob, you have some uh, news about one of our friends, I think. Uh, well, I do, actually. Uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Vischer there, and uh, we heard about Steve's heart attack a, f- a week or two ago, and uh, he he was in some serious, you know, danger for quite a long time, but uh, he managed to uh, survive the surgery he said that he had the uh, surgery on the 14th of uh, September, and uh, he spent a couple of day- days in the ICU. Then he was back to the coronary care unit. Uh, a week after the surgery, they transferred him to another hospital to start cardiac uh, rehab, and he was discharged a couple of days ago, uh, just before the end of the month. Uh, so, I mean, I think we're all very uh, grateful that He's uh, on email talking to us as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, being a, another statistic. And uh, really, I, I think obviously he got some really great care out there. And um, I, I'm just glad he's in good shape because, man, the thought of making a trip to Australia, I, I was, I, if I do it, I want to. I want to go because I want to see the place, not because something else draws me to uh, to the country. Yeah, I've been thinking about Australia as well myself. Yeah, but do you, a long trip. It's it would really. I mean, it is absolutely about halfway around the world. For yeah, you isn't it? Uh, yeah, but I used yes, but I used to fly to Japan and Singapore and once to Australia. Those others frequently, and you know, you just get used to it. It's I don't know. You watch a few movies, you have a few naps, eat about six meals. <laughs> I, I think I hear an air, airplane geeks road trip coming up. I think we should. Uh, I'll figure a date to meet up down there, and uh, you know, record a few episodes, and you know, just uh, have a good time. Well, we won't be doing it on frequent flyer miles, I'm sure. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and, I, and I'm not sure I'd ever want to come back after. <laughs> well, now think about this from where you are, Max. In, in uh, yeah. uh, what's that state that you live in? Connecticut. Connecticut. I can't say Connecticut, but try spelling it. <laughs> but now, which way would be faster to go from Connecticut to the west and out over the Pacific, or to the east? Yeah, right. Uh, no, going west. There are more direct flights now than um, than when I was traveling. But usually, often what I would do is, is I'd, uh, I'd drive to JFK and then uh, from JFK go to Chicago and then from Chicago to Narita in Japan. And then if I was going to Beijing, on from there to Beijing, or if I was going to uh, Singapore, then from Narita down to, to Singapore. When you went to Japan, you could not... You could not get to Japan direct from JFK? From JFK. I mean, no, there weren't any flights then. Wow, that's interesting. Wow. So what was that in this century or the 
previous century? Uh, good question. I, I think, <laughs> wow. I think it was the previous century. Yeah, well, see, that says quite a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, we were all born in the last century. Think about that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. All right. That, it's just too, that's too long a drive for me. I don't want to be in an airplane that long. Uh, I don't know what the travel time is from JFK to uh, Sydney, but I, I'm not that, I don't want to do that. Yeah, that's that's more than half a day. All right. Hey, we had a um, a little item from uh, from Micah just just briefly. Uh, apparently, a 33 year old man crashed through the fire gate at the Portland Jetport in Maine. He drove down the runway for half a mile, and then he crashed into a fence over by some kind of a pond. And the runway was closed for about 45 minutes. So. I don't know. I'm kind of surprised that someone was actually able to, to do that and drive down the runway. <laughs> you know, uh, let alone, you know, why would somebody want to do that? I'm, I'm figuring the guy must have been drunk or something. But I'm figuring the same thing. Yeah, they said he was staying at the Embassy Suites Hotel near the airport, so maybe he was just uh, in the bar a little too long, and I don't know. Yeah. Really wanted to make his flight. I don't know. So there have been a couple instances where people have uh, followed Google onto a runway. I recall that happened in Alaska, where they ended up driving on a runway after Google routed them through it. So anything's possible. Yeah, but they true. probably didn't need to break through uh, a, a security fence in order to get on the airport from Who Google. Uh, and uh, again, the hmm, there's a fence in front of me. Well. There's only one thing to do about a fence. You drive <laughs> through it at so 80 right. miles an hour. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Rob, I, I looked up the answer to your question of a minute ago, and that is United, JFK to Sydney, nonstop, 15 hours and five minutes. Oof. Wow. Hmm. I, I did roam to uh, Chicago a few months ago coming back from Europe, and that was 10 and a half, and... I was just, I was wiped out. I really was. I, but to think another, almost another five hours on top of that. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know Sorry, what? Steve. And actually, I see I made a mistake. It put in San Francisco. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, I thought that sounded a little short. Yeah. In fact, uh, all, the only thing available from JFK are one stops. So my mistake there. Ah, Okay. That brings it up to about 22 hours with the stops. Yeah. It's a long day. All right, on to some listener mail. We heard from James. James wrote to us and said, Hi, Airplane Geeks crew. My name is James. I live in Anchorage, Alaska. I just thought you might want to know I've been listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast for at least five years. Thank you, James. And the Aviation News Talk podcast for around one. I just wanted to let you know that all of the information on both of these podcasts helped me to pass ground school in an Iranka, is that how you say that? In Iranka, Sedan. I just yes. wanted to thank you all for all you do to help aspiring GA pilots. But you know what I didn't understand about this? Why would you take your ground school in an Iranka, Sedan? Well, most people would be taking it online or in a classroom. But uh, I suppose if you had a very small class, you could fit into the four seats of that aircraft. Right. 
Okay. Well, at least he's got a cool airplane. <laughs> it is. Those haven't been made for a long, long time, right? Oh, God, no. Yeah. For, 1948 to 1951, tail dragger. Wow. Which <laughs> might make it one of the newer airplanes at some airports. Yeah, that's true. Also, Rob wrote to us, not our Rob, a different Rob. He says, G'day, geeks. Just got around to listening to episode 766 on air travelers with disabilities. Another exa- excellent example of the airplane geek's motto to educate and inform. Michael Switek's rich voice and eloquent delivery was a pleasure to listen to and raised my awareness of some of the problems people less fortunate than I am can face in air travel. He says, my days of jetting around the world are pretty much over, but from now on, his advice on how to react to and treat people with disabilities will hopefully stick in the back of my mind to be retrieved when needed. And then he closes, please pass on my best wishes to Mike for the valuable work he's doing. So I wrote to Mike and I said, this email just made my day and I thought you'd like to to see it. And Mike wrote back and said, yes, it made his day as well. That was very good. All right. With that, we want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our guest this episode was Anna Dietrich, the regulatory affairs lead at X-Wing. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. The direct link to the show notes for this episode is airplanegeeks.com slash 768. And, of course, you can reach us via email. Write to us at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. And if you'd like to get an invitation to our Slack listener team or our Discord server, write us at that same email address, thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com, and we'll tell you how to get in. All right, Mr. Trescott, any closing thoughts? Oh, I'm just happy to be with everyone here today. Hope everyone is having an awesome time doing whatever it is that they are doing. And after you're done listening to this podcast, go ahead and switch over to the Aviation News Talk podcast. And if you want to shoot me an email, just click on contact at the top of the AviationNewsTalk.com website page. Excellent. And Rob Mark, how about you? Well, they can find me at uh, Jetwine uh, also, uh, along with uh, Scott Spangler. And um, we're always uh, happy to take uh, an email, should anybody be you know, make a mistake and, you know, email me instead of Max Trescott. I mean, I, I would answer. I, I think it'd be really neat. Uh, but that really doesn't happen. Uh, so I'm, <laughs> I'm waiting, though, because it will someday. My, my ship will come in. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And David Vanderhoof, how about you? Well, of course, you can find me at the American Helicopter Museum. Um, like a lot of people have over the over the last couple of years. And, of course, you can find me on social media and on Twitter or X, whatever, and, and basically you need to figure out how to spell Vanderhoof. So with that, Max, where can we find you? Well, you can find out where I hang out at 30,000feet.com. I've been spending time on Mastodon lately, um, also on our Discord server. So, please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Nah, let's see. What do I say about this time? Nighty-night. (laughs) Nighty-night. Thanks for listening.
Uh, Anna, just a, a little bit of a different topic. Uh, as we all know, aviation is <laughs> fairly male-dominated, and, uh, and and you're not. Uh, well, it doesn't sound right. And it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that didn't come out right. I can go in the blooper reel. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, good evening to you. <laughs> Sorry, Rob. Yeah. But <laughs> also with us is uh, David Vanderhoof and his dog. David is the, our that aviation. No, I that's, think that's, that's mine. That is not my, that is not yeah. my bean. That is I think Rob's that problem. Is oh, that was Rob's dog? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Now I can tell. All right. Well, that would be Archie, folks, if you're hearing this. Hey, Nancy, would, would you bring the dog in, please? Thank you. You're screwing up our show. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Did that get on tape? Uh. <laughs> David Vanderhoof is our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Would, would it be bad to say that the show is going to the dogs? Yes. No. It, okay. It would be right. accurate. I won't say that then. <laughs>